Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of the practice of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. Welcome to another episode of The Crux of the Story. I believe this is number 112. We focus on the art, science, and practice of communications and its impact on society. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Fernandez. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, good. Mike leads communications, as all our listeners know, at Enbridge, an important global energy company. Mike's in Calgary today, and I assume the winter is beginning to make its uh, effect felt up your way, Mike. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting a warm feel since we're going to talk about oceans today. <laughs> so, Mike, we've had many journalists on the crux looking at issues such as conspiracy theories, mis- and disinformation, CEOs and their responsibilities to society and public policy. And today we're going to talk about oceans. Um, yes, oceans. And I will explain why after I introduce our guests. Joining us is the New York Times bestselling author and award-winning investigative journalist, Ian Urbina. Ian's book, Out The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontiers, covers overlooked but increasingly relevant issues about lawlessness on the world's ocean. The book has been called by the New York Times a masterclass in journalism. Explaining his book's title, Ian has said, the ocean is not an empty space, but rather a complex web of overlapping jurisdictions and authorities and a thorny puzzle for any ship that intends to operate outside national boundaries. Ian founded the journalism nonprofit, The Outlaw Ocean Project. His work unearthed the corruption, greed, and exploitation that thrives on our oceans. It also speaks to how important information that is normally out of view of the general public can be uncovered. Ian's work is not just about the system that leads to this exploitation. It also details the story of people who have been victims of exploitation at sea. The book covers devastating stories surrounding trafficking and modern day slavery, pirates and mercenaries wreaking havoc, smugglers, thieves, clandestine oil dumpers, vigilante activism, environmentally hazardous ghost ships, and much more. So, as I said, Mike, I'd explain how this is relevant to our audience. Every listener of the Crux either works for or is a customer of companies that rely on the ocean for moving goods. If I worked for a large multinational right now, I'd want to know more about the work of the Outlaw Ocean Project so I could form my own opinions about the subject. Also, and intriguingly to me, I'm very interested in this, the Outlaw Ocean Project is an excellent example of multimedia storytelling at its best. And I think it's something all of our listeners can learn from. We'll also talk to Ian about his recent blockbuster article in The New Yorker that paints a vivid picture of the treachery and suffering and lawlessness of global shipping and fishing. That article is already prompting changes in policies around the global fishing industry. So with that long introduction, Ian, welcome to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you for having me. So you've been focused on our ocean uh, for a long time, a subject that largely goes uncovered by 
other members of the media. So I'm going to ask you a three-part question. I know those are always tricky. How did you get interested in the topic? What keeps you wanting to keep reporting on it? And how did that lead to the Outlaw Ocean Project? I got interested um, actually before I became a journalist. I was a cultural anthropologist and um, I was losing momentum on my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> and so I took some time away from University of Chicago and and went and worked on a ship um, uh, anchored in Singapore. And um, as a cultural anthropologist, I had sort of that eye on interesting demographics and invisible communities. And herein, I stumbled across a sort of transient diaspora tribe that is seafarers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was riveted by their lives and their language and their lore and their humor and their hierarchies and their superstitions and everything about them. Um, I then went back to my dissertation and then went into journalism. And 20 years later in journalism, I had to sit down with an editor who asked me what I thought would be a really interesting project to tackle. And I pulled out the notion of, well, the watery two thirds of the planet, <laughs> you know, has 50 million people working out there and we rarely hear from them or about them. And I know there's some epic stories to be told. Um, so that began the series in the New York Times in 2015. Um, what keeps me going back? It's a mix of things. Um, the, as a journalist, you're always looking, especially as an investigative journalist, you're always looking for virgin snow. It's hard in the noisy space that is today's journalism and the internet. Um, so when you come across a topic, however broadly defined, that offers stories that don't feel trampled by so many other journalists, um, you, you latch onto them. And these stories, they're slow, they're expensive, they're sometimes dangerous, they're difficult to get, but they are, tend to have not a huge amount of competition because not many journalists are going out there to the high seas to report. So that keeps me going back. And then a strange sense of marvel and maybe Catholic guilt at kind of the more depravity mm -hmm. and inhumanity I see, the more I feel a certain obligation to keep trying to work on those issues. Um, and then just a sense of addiction to that otherworldly space that is the high seas and the, the feeling you get when you're out there, it's hard to describe, but it's um, very addictive. Um, and then the last question. When, yeah. When did, when did the outlaw ocean project come to be? So I did a two year series in the New York times, and then I took a two year book leave to go out to see and produce the book. And then I went back to this, the times for a year and um, kind of felt like a changed person and had a hard time putting this topic down. And so I thought, well, why don't I stick with it? But I'll probably have to leave the paper to do that. And so in 2019, um, after a lot of counsel from former editors at, the, at ProPublica and the Marshall Project and these sorts of places that are similar models, I thought, well, why don't we create a small nonprofit journalism shop that really focuses on these kinds of stories and takes the content out to publishing partners around the world. So 2019 is when we began. How many people work at the Outlaw Ocean Project? We have 14 full-time staff now. It's very small if you think about what we do. And uh, yeah, um, 14. And then we have, you know, it's an accordion. So, you know, it expands in 
getting help from part-time and, and, and contractors when we have big, big pushes. Like most recently we had a four-year investigation about the Chinese distant water fishing fleet that we finally pushed out. And, um, so we doubled our size while, you know, in the final stages of that. Ian, welcome to the crux. And as, as we talked, I had, um, the luxury to have seen a little bit of this up close many decades ago working for a United States Senator who was interested in the oceans. Many people don't think about the world's oceans much beyond coastal areas. You know, we think about sailing, beaches, vacations, but uh, not about the vastness beyond uh, miles into the high seas. This is an area the world fraught uh, with uh, criminal behavior and environmental challenges. Uh, for those listeners that may not have any real skin in the game or understanding, um, what would you want to share with them? And how would you explain the role of the oceans in the regular person's mm. everyday life? Well, I mean, one of our missions intellectually, epistemologically, if you will, is to try to get the world to reimagine the space and think of it differently. I think in popular imagination, in literature, in law, um, in governmental oversight, there's a very siloed way of conceiving of this realm. You know, there are journalistically, for example, it's often been historically been viewed as an environmental marine story. And it is that, right? You know, below the waterline is this entire universe of biodiversity that matters. And I'll get into how much it matters. But there's also a lot above the waterline, you know, 50 million people there. And and there are stories and important issues um, above the waterline. So one of the things we do is try to say, look, imagine the watery two-thirds of the planet as a place it is an otherworldly realm. A lot of it is extra jurisdictional, meaning it's outside national boundaries, and therefore it's distinct. It's like outer space or the poles. It's it's not like landed areas where there are there's sovereignty. It's this other realm that belongs to everyone and no one, and that has big concerns because even when there are rules or laws or treaties, um, there aren't um, internationally recognized police forces to actually enforce them. And so rules are only as good as their enforcement. And now you got a problem, right? So the, the high seas are very funky, you know, um, as a universe. And there's lots of people who live there and there's lots of activity going on there. It's not a watery desert where nothing happens and everyone flies over or traverses. There's actually stuff going on there. So that's the first thing to imagine. And the things going on there are marine and human, you know, as a journalistic endeavor, it should be approached as both. Um, so that's one of our agendas. Also to expand the taxonomy of how people think of the extra legal, not always illegal, not always bad, but often extra legal behavior going on out there. It's not just piracy, plastic pollution, illegal whaling, overfishing, you know, there's also, or oil spills, repo men and abortion providing and internet cable laying and arms dumping and human slavery and, you know, um, just a huge amount of other pharmaceutical bioprospecting, you know, um, engineering experimentation going on where more satellites are being launched outside the jurisdiction of countries and, and 
iron ore is being dumped because they think it might solve climate change. And there's really amazing, weird stuff happening out there that most folks don't realize. So I, I think that's one of our agendas is to like widen the aperture of people's thinking of the space. Well, and it's interesting to me because, I mean, historically, we tended to think of jurisdiction of nations is not extending much beyond a, a cannon fire shot, which was deemed to be about three miles. And then other countries have had um, different stakes that go out to 200 miles. And it's really a patch quilt because every country has a different claim. Sometimes there are claims that cross each other. Um, and But then the, the vastness of the sea is well beyond even 200 miles. And to your point, you know, who really polices that? And what, what actually traverses that space? In your book, you cover such diverse and expansive kinds of lawlessness at sea. What do you see as the highest priority crime that needs to be addressed right now? I mean, I, I think big crimes are often the most dispersed ones, right? So for centuries, well, for decades, at least, if not centuries, we've thought of the air as a bottomless trash can where we could dump carbon limitlessly and no one needed to pay and it would get absorbed and removed and sort of washed away. Now we know the climate crisis that there are limits to that trash can and there are prices when the trash can starts overflowing. The ocean suffers from a similar ideational problem in that for over a century, the ocean was viewed under the notion of dilution is the solution to pollution. There's so much water. Is it really harmful if we dump plastic or um, sludge from oil, from oil sludge from ships or sewage from cruise ships or what have you, or carbon, you know, gets absorbed in this other way in the oceans. And because there's so much water, it's going to get processed by this sui generis thing that is called the ocean, right? The, the, and the thing that makes in this notion, in this metaphor, the thing that makes that organism, if you will, of the ocean process the carbon, process the plastic are the creatures within the ocean. Okay. Now we're reckoning with the fact that we were wrong, right? We've been raking the oceans of the very biodiversity, the creatures that process that stuff on the one hand through industrial fishing at an, mostly industrial fishing at an unsustainable rate. So we're removing the apparatus within that biodiverse mechanism that actually performs the function of giving us 50% of the air we believe, breathe, right? Or the temperature stabilizer of the planet. Um, so on the one hand, we're doing that. And on the other hand, we're continuing to dump stuff into that space, either through the air and acidification and absorption, or directly into the water, plastic pollution, sludge, etc. Those two phenomena are catching up with us and we're realizing, whoa, this other trash can called the ocean is overflowing. We've got a big problem. Now, if you step back and look at the planet as one big organism, the oceans are the lungs, right? 50% of the air we breathe gets cleaned by those things. The temperature stabilizer of that creature is the oceans and we're, we're screwing with it um, by, again, by raking all the biodiversity out of it. 
Um, it's also just the circulatory system of modern commerce. 80% of products traverse that space much more than planes or trucks. So in all these ways, if we mess with that portion of the organism that is the planet, which we already are doing, we have a big, big crisis on our hands. So I think the biggest crime is the crime that has for too long allowed us to view legally, intellectually, commercially, that space as free and not needing in governance and roles. Yeah. Give, give some dimension to this. I mean, you talk about number of people and you talked about how some of your early research started in Singapore. And I've seen, you know, the ocean transportation ships with all their cargo uh, seemingly for as far as the eye can see off the coast of Singapore. Um, Describe that. Help help us understand. Help the listeners understand how how many ships are out there in you know at a given time. Mm. Yeah. So the how many ships is a is a tough one. I should you know a decade and a half in be able to answer that easily. I, I will tell you this: the vast majority of ships that are out there, and the vast majority of humans that are on those ships are in the fishing universe. Okay, so. The shipping universe is a much smaller portion. So if you imagine the number often bandied about is 50 million you know, people, the, the, that includes nearshore guys, and it's mostly a male universe, that go out for a day, a week, but it also includes distant water. So those are mostly guys that go out for two years on a, on a tour. You know? um, and so we're looking at of the 50 million people that work out there, you know, 80% above are on fishing wow. vessels. Um, the shipping portion of that is far fewer ships, far bigger ships, far less crimes. They're not squeaky clean, but not the intense stuff that we tend to investigate. That's typically in, in distant water fishing vessels. Um, but, you know, some crimes, rape, dumping of oil, you know, kind of violence in the form of armed guards that are overzealous, um, uh, these sorts of crimes are happening. And then crimes that are small C crimes, like the allowance of this industry writ large to to dump sulfur at unsustainable levels into the air because the laws haven't caught up to restrict that, that industry the, the way it has other industries like trucking or trains. Or In terms of sheer scale, we're dealing with you know hundreds of thousands of ships are traversing the globe at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, so we talked a little bit about the environmental impact, Ian, of um, this activity on the oceans. Uh, can you share with us some of the human impacts? You talked about some of the people, mostly men, nearshore fishing, distant um, fishing as well, and then cargo. Could you share a story from your experiences and your reporting uh, that re revolves around some of the abuse that you've reported on on the oceans. For our listeners, uh, you obviously wrote recently a, a piece in The New Yorker that focused on one um, person on a, uh, a fishing vessel. So could you t tell us a story about how the people on these vessels are impacted by what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll do an arc, you know, the, the concept of sea slavery is this concept that there is a problem of forced labor on fishing vessels, quite especially. Um, in 2015, when the original series ran the New York Times, 
the first, the second story that ran in the series was about sea slavery on the South China Sea on Thai vessels. These were 40-man crew, five Thai officers, the rest Cambodian, Laotian, Burmese, Rohingya, um, trafficked workers onto the vessels. They were, the, 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 the form of forced labor on those vessels ran the gamut from Lang Long, a guy we put on the front page of the New York Times who had been shackled by the neck for two years whenever he wasn't working. So pretty black and white, egregious, you know, old school slavery, all the way over to debt bondage, you know, sort of softer, modern, nonetheless slavery, but where you're not allowed to leave the vessel until you quote unquote, pay off your debt to the captain who bought you from a trafficker or labor broker that brought you illegally into the country. And this model of, of um, human bondage of captivity is distinct. You know, you can find it in garment factories in Bangladesh, and you can find it in brick factories in India, and you can find it in lots of places around the world on, you know, plantations in, in Borneo. And um, at sea, it's quite distinct because fishing vessels, especially distant water fishing vessels, thousands of miles from shore are a lot like spaceships. You know, they are out there in this other world where you can't get off of that spaceship. If you step off of it, you disappear. You know, you're, um, And so you are physically captive. Um, and then even when you go into port, the sort of labor model on a lot of these vessels are ones that are very violent. In 2009, the UN did a study of, of the South China Sea in particular and workers on those vessels and interviewed Cambodian deckhands and 49% of them had witnessed murder of other crew. Um, it's this extremely violent universe, largely because of the isolation, the hierarchy on vessels, captains on ships are not bosses, they're gods. Um, and so and for all these reasons, and also they're extremely afraid of mutiny. They're five Thai officers and 35 young, fit Cambodian crew. The, the numbers are with the, the underlings, right? So there's a lot of performative violence that happens to keep everyone in check and divide and conquer. So that was 2015. Jump now to the, the, the series we just put in the New, York, the New Yorker magazine. That was a close look at the, just the Chinese distant water fishing fleet all around the world. Same basic model, all the way from debt bondage to straight up coercion with violence um, on these vessels. Pre-COVID, most Chinese distant water fishing vessels were using Indonesian crew, um, usually hired and, and contracted through manning agencies in third party countries. A lot of debt bondage and bamboozlement in the structure of those trafficking contracts. Um, Post-COVID, things got tough for the Chinese and everyone. And so getting crew from other countries got logistically tough. So Chinese vessels began using inland Chinese. Same demographic. These are mostly literate guys. They have no clue what they're signing. They may not even speak the main language that has recruited them onto the vessel. They don't understand the wage structure. They thought they were going to make X. They get to see they, they realize they're making X minus a factor of 10. Um, similar levels of violence. So a, a very similar story um, on these vessels. So who, if anyone, Ian, could help these people? In other words, is there a solution? You're, you're raising awareness through your journalism and your storytelling, but who will read that and make changes? Yeah, I mean, I think the first key thing is to take that question, which is a very legitimate question, and bring it down to uh, in altitude. And um, so um, it's sort of like, 
you wrote this great story about injustice. So who's going to solve injustice? I'm not answering that question because it's too lofty. Uh, I don't have an answer and you shouldn't trust me if I did. But who's going to solve um, the, the problem of lawlessness or the specific problem of sea slavery? Okay, let's bring that down to scale. So let's take it down a notch and say within the Chinese fleet or within the Thai fleet. Okay. And let's then say, okay, who are the very, if we look at it as a ball, a conceptual ball, it's probably going to get approached by a bunch of different angles. So who plugs into that ball that could apply useful pressure? Consumers and the marketplace. So those are average buyers like us on this you know, podcast. Um, in our purchasing decisions, opting with our wallets or or pocketbooks, you know, to, to buy this brand and not that brand because it's, uh, we did a little research and they seem to be less or more likely to be implicated in these worrisome things. That's a purchasing pressure and it can work on scale, you know, on level. Then up from us are the big companies, right? And they have huge power, the Walmarts or the Costco's or the US government is a big purchaser, the EU, little, you know, th- these big aggregate players have probably the most power, in my humble opinion, even more than governments in this space for reasons I can explain. But those folks will see, look, we don't want to be on the New Yorker and the New York Times again and again associated with this. So we have to like find a way to have more vetting occur in our supply chain. Look, blood diamonds, sweatshop garments, you know, you know, fair trade coffee. There there have been supply chain reckoning moments in the history of different product lines and seafood, seafood is having one now to some degree. And the big players, the huge buyers, the companies are going to have to say like, look, if we can't get stuff that's not tainted with these range of problems, illegal fishing and forced labor in the factory, on the ships, then maybe we shouldn't be operating in that country. Or if we if we are going to keep operating there, then we have to like bring our own certification regime, our own auditing structure that actually imposes some vetting uh, so that we're not so tarnished by this. That's what's probably going to happen. And then governments is the last one I'll say. Governments have a lot of power. The US government, you know, there, there are mechanisms on the table already to stop imports of you know, forced things produced by forced labor and customs and border and treasury department and state, you know, department of state can do lots. And and some, and they're starting to, um, to say, look, we can't allow this stuff to come in until you guys can prove that it's not tainted by the thing that these journalists are saying you're tainted by. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, earlier on, we, we talked in terms of, you know, 80% of activity is more in the fishing maritime space as opposed to the commercial operations of moving product from point A to point Z. Um, And your suggesting seems like it would really have an impact on that 20%. And I, the picture you painted in terms of the 80% takes my mind to thinking about, you know, imagery from uh, old novels like uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you know, where you've got these individuals operating at sea with ill-defined government structure. Um, just kind of curious as to, is will that be enough? Or is, is, is are, are we just caught up with the the lack of infrastructure to police all of this? So I would just go back to some numbers you said at the beginning. I would say 
when we're looking at the ships and the people out on the water, especially on the high seas, the 80-20 is fishing versus shipping. And so a lot of the most recent focus, sea slavery, has focused on that problem, which is pronounced in fishing. So a lot of the answers I just gave were, how do we tackle sea slavery? Okay, it's probably going to be on fishing vessels. And the imports, that, that the sort of import government controls, seafood imports. You know, so, um, yeah. So, so I mean, uh, if if... And this is happening right now in response to the investigation we just put out. Okay, wait, we now have overwhelming evidence that a large percentage of the seafood coming from this one province in China is potentially tainted with forced labor on the vessels or forced labor in the plants. We at Customs and Border probably need to shut down imports until we can figure out a beggar. And that's some are arguing for that right now, but that's seafood specific. It's customs based. It's government based, etc. Okay, now shipping. Shipping has a reckoning coming its way too. And I, I've been to some events. I haven't investigated and worked on it yet, but it's on my to do list. But you know, the emissions of the shipping industry are colossal. Very dirty fuel. Really problematic shipping. And the the beneficiaries of that cheap method of transport, i.e., Maersk and all the Nike everything I buy at, through Amazon is on the those vessels that are polluting. And there's discussion and advocacy pressure on, wait, shouldn't the the products that are carried in the shipping container on the mare ship that's emitting sulfur, shouldn't the charge potentially be carried by all the beneficiaries in that supply chain? And therefore, shouldn't there be a fee, you know, a carbon tax, if you will, that's, and, and that's coming, I think, um, there's pressure. But that's the 20% of the other, it's a, it's not a sea slavery problem, because I haven't found sea slavery. Right. But um, so will it be enough? Yeah, I think uh, it's slow and, and never perfect. But I think it's, um, it's probably going to improve things significantly. There's always going to be, especially in the seafaring space, other ports you can go to, and then you tr just truck it in. You saw this with the tie, that South China Sea reporting. We hammered the New York Times, the AP, a bunch of folks really hammered the Thai fleet hard. A lot of pressure on them, 2014, 2015, Pulitzer, Polk awards, all on the coverage. And the Thai fleet largely then started moving over a lot of the really sketchy stuff to land it in Cambodia and truck it across the border. You know, and and so now the import mechanisms at the Thai ports were completely oblivious to the bad stuff coming. So, you know, you squeeze the balloon one place, it's gonna bulge another, but you gotta you gotta squeeze the balloon. Yeah. And 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 to your point, I mean I think that companies don't want the reputation challenge associated with all of this. Um I'm just kind of curious, as you've delved into these intricate challenges, what do you see as kind of the shared responsibilities of multinational companies in both addressing and helping to alleviate some of the systemic issues that perpetuate exploitation and suffering within the global maritime system? Look, I mean, globalization, I was just reading a great review by Louis Menard and the New Yorker about kind of the history yeah. of neoliberalism, a really brilliant piece. Um, globalization has had its benefits and its dark side. And I think one of the dark side is we all get our products cheap and fast um, because of the decentralized way that commerce now happens. And the hidden costs that get, that, that exist between the many handoffs, the many more handoffs are consequential. Um, 
their human rights, their environmental, their lots of things, their corruption, their white collar crime, they're all sorts of things that are in between the spaces that exist now in the many handoffs. And to some degree, they're not just there by accident, they're there by design. They're part of what allows everything to get to us so quickly and cheaply. You know, see, slavery is not just the work of evil, it's the work of efficiency. <laughs> you know, it's like a cost-saving tactic. Um, and so I think, to answer your question, there's going to have to be um, costly and time-consuming and tedious um, work by industries and company players to actually push back the other direction and get much more centralized understanding and control over their supply chains so that they're not continually getting hit by things that they didn't know about. They have to know about it. If they're going to benefit from the cost savings by working in that country, then they have to know what's happening in that country or else someone else is going to find out what's going on there and it's not going to look pretty and it's going to come back to your brand. And then it's on you to have answered why you didn't know that. You were getting savings by working in country X and now you know part of that savings was because that 13-year-old was working 20 year, twenty hours a day. You know, um, So I feel like th that's what's going to have to happen in, in seafood. And seafood, I think, in general is is um, less evolved than some other product lines. Um, and hopefully our journalism and others will help change that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah. And in that fishing, Ian, what is it doing? I love your, you know, talking about above the waterline and below. What's it doing? We hear stories all the time about overfishing and fish populations. How, how badly are the fisheries being damaged by what's going on? Well, I mean, you talk to some academic. So here's the number, a third. Okay. A third of the world's fish stocks are at or beyond the point of collapse. Okay, you talk to some, the, the glasses have full crowd, and they say that means two thirds aren't. That's a good news story. And you talk to others, um, the glasses have empty crowd, and they say a third? That's crazy. That is not a sustainable rate, and it's likely way worse than that. And, and I'm in the glasses have empty crowd, <laughs> um, uh, just so that I'm very clear, because here's why one, that third is anything but an undercount because most of the world's waters are not actually monitored. The, high, the, the actual science that's tracking the health of stocks is a minuscule portion of the waters and the data is super shoddy. And it's, you know, and so that's the big issue is it's an undercount. And then even if it was an accurate count, a third of the entire oceans are at or beyond the point of collapse is to me way bigger a number than we should be okay with because not just like I love fish and they're cute and I want to sustain them, but because the biodiversity we're talking about there is central to our existential status on this planet. And we need the the coral and the and the seagrass and the and the fish and everything else there to do stuff for us so that we can survive. 
Well, so tell us some more about the the project that you just did. It was a four year uh, investigative uh, project um, that you you talked about a little bit um, that detailed a broad pattern of human rights abuses tied to the global seafood industry, and uh, it appeared in the New Yorker uh, about a month ago, I guess now, Ian. And so what what was that about? And as I said in my introduction to you, it's already leading to some changes. So we're, we've talked about social impact uh, on this podcast quite often, and, and it appears that you're getting it fairly quickly. So tell us about that project and what's happened since it was published. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think of seafood as a thing, right, a global product, commodity, um, it's a pretty important one. It's the last source of wild protein. It's the largest globally traded food commodity by value. Um, and it, as a thing, comes from two distinct universes. It's harvested in one universe at sea, mostly, and there's aquaculture on land, but mostly at sea. And then it's processed and prepared on land. And so if you're going to trace this product from when it's you know, from from catch, from bait to plate, as we often say, from catch to consumption, um, then you need to be ready to traverse two distinct universes, on, on water and on land. Now, if you take a step back and think big picture, all right, we want to take a look at global seafood, and now we want to look at the biggest players within that handling of that product. You are quickly come to the conclusion that there's one country that is the superpower of seafood, and that's China. It's the superpower in many ways, one of which is their distant water fishing fleet, so vessels that are on the high seas or in foreign waters, is bigger than the next three combined. Okay, it's much bigger, you know, and there are arguments about the number. But even if you use a conservative effort estimate on the size of the fleet, which we used, um, it's still way bigger. You know, 6,500 is the number we used. The next biggest fleet is under 300. Some folks use 17,000. Okay, so this is the range. All right. And then the second biggest way, the second way in which China is the superpower seafood is on land. Even stuff caught by French flag vessels in French waters or U.S. flag vessels in California waters um, is a lot of it's processed in China. It's caught, frozen, sent there, processed, frozen again, sent back. So that means China is colossally important in both universes. And the third way it's important journalistically is China is the most opaque of players, right? It's journalistically very, very hard to penetrate and, and get information out of what's happening in that realm. So for all those reasons, we thought, let's do what the, the, the legacy outlets, the New York Times and others can't afford the time and resources to do. And let's really, really try to do a fair, rigorous investigation of China and its role in the global seafood supply chain. And for our listeners, just to emphasize that point, too, about processing, I read, I think, on your site, Ian, that half of the fish sticks served in public schools in the United States are processed in China. Yeah, that that is the statistic. And, and, and there's speculation that a good portion of that half is coming out of Russian waters. Um, okay. So Pollock that comes out of Russian waters gets sent to China, processed, and gets sent to the U.S. and then wow. is purchased, usually not by USDA federal um, um, but by a, a provision in the law that says, the Buy America law that says, you public school district boss who's got to fee- fill the cafeteria shells, you're allowed to buy at Walmart, you know, at, at any 
local thing so long as you stay under this price point because you can get it faster and cheaper than getting it through us. So public school lunch programs buy a lot of stuff off shelf. Wow. Impact, you asked. It's been shocking. I've been doing this three decades and I've never seen impact like this series has. I think there are a couple of reasons for that, but um, the impact has been, you know, within, we've all, we published a month ago and there's been two hearings in parliament, two pieces of legislation that were thought not to be able to pass that got passed about forced labor in, in imports in, in, in the EU, a congressional white house hearing, specifically the investigation and what it found a WRO, which is a withhold released order petition, which is essentially a request by lawyers to the Department of Homeland Security, but really to Customs and Border saying any products, any seafood products in this case coming from this company should be stopped at at um, port because there are legitimate um, concerns about forced labor. Um, there's one that's already been submitted, another coming this week, a couple of global Magnitsky petitions that are going to basically go to Treasury that, see, that will blacklist certain companies and, and individuals um, tied to the investigation, a bunch of follow-up coverage by industry press, um, CEO resigned of a major company, about a half dozen big, big chains um, severed ties with plants in China that we um, showed had uh, forced labor in them. So a lot of impact already, and, and I think more to come. So I'm, I'm really interested in the impact of journalism in your work. Um, uh, Ian, in, in your book, you write that uh, media more than governments, uh, more than police, can affect change. Um, elaborate on this a bit and, and, and a little bit on maybe the impact that you've seen from your work thus far. I mean, I would just quickly point out the Associated Press in 2015 won a Pulitzer on sea slavery. The Guardian, Al Jazeera, NPR, huge numbers of local media you never heard of, like have been kind of collectively covering a lot of these issues, often piecemeal, often really well, but um, one-offs. New York Times did in the series, and then what we've tried to do since then is embrace an impact, a change model that says if you really want to drive change with journalism you probably need to stay with it for many years mm -hmm. because industries not mistakenly think that if they can just shelter in place for long enough, the, the storm will blow over. And it usually does because um, of the short attention span of the, the business of journalism. So I think that's what we do differently. We also just do deeper investigation and really connect hard supply chain dots from the crime to the consumer. And that's the other, at least in my model, thing you've got to do if you really, because we can bellyache about the Thai fleet or the Chinese fleet or the US fleet or whomever, but they're not brand vulnerable for the most part. Um, but the, the the end brands are the ones that really will pay attention, especially if they think you're not going away. So I, I think, I, that, and, and then I would also say, I think seafood and the ocean space is distinctly needing of journalism for a couple of reasons. One, there's very little of it happening on a sustained level, investigative level in, in theater, meaning done on site at sea. Uh, there's very little of it happening out there. And so it's, it's a, it's more of a free for all for the players out there. There's not a lot of attention. And then number two, because of the extra jurisdictional nature of the high seas and governments kind of don't have authority. And even when they do, they don't have political will. 
um, to do anything about these issues. I have less confidence in governments driving huge amount of change on these issues. I have more, and this is not some Smithian kind of notion here. It's just like pragmatism. My sense is that market players and companies are more likely going to clean things up and journalism can have a distinct role with market players in a way that we don't always often have with government players. Uh, so that's why I think journalism has a unique role that it can play on the ocean realm. You know, it's, it's funny, Ian, you, you say the same thing about this sticking with it uh, perspective. We, we talked to the editor of the New, New Humanitarian last year on this program, and that was her point of view on this type of journalism, where you, in some ways, are trying to affect change. And I, that leads me to uh, a question. We have a lot of journalism students, Ian, who listen to this podcast where does the activism and the journalism, do they sort of cross at some point in some kind of Venn diagram? Um, and, and I assume you hear that sometimes as a criticism mm-hmm. of the work you do. I haven't, I haven't heard it, but I, I, I know I could hear it, luckily, right. and, and I'm ready for it. Um, <laughs> I, I hear it now, thankfully, more as a question but maybe it's whispered as a criticism after the interview. I don't know. But um, (laughs) how I view it is this way. Um, We at our organization are very meticulous about the electrified fence. We respect the electrified fence. We don't touch the electrified fence and, and we don't play cutesy with it. The electrified fence between advocacy and journalism, we are on the journalism side. What we do is talk across it. So we are always happy to talk with advocates in the lead up to stories as sources and in after stories as interlocutors, just like we're happy to talk with industry players across the fence um, and, and government and law enforcement and all these different types of stakeholders, but we hold the line. So what does that mean? The line is different now for me at my own organization than it was at the New York Times. And that difference can explain the, at least my understanding of that fence. When I was at the New York Times and we published the original series and I was asked to testify before Congress, I was not allowed to. And I understood entirely why. Okay. Uh, you can get pigeonholed. You can get, you know, some lawmaker who wants to promote their law or undercut someone else's law may use you and ask you in a certain way. And, and it's a very partisan um, environment. And so the bosses at the New York Times said, we don't put our reporters in those settings because it's just too dodgy. I got it. But when I left, I said, I know where that fence is. And I, I know how to handle myself with those guys and women who might want to try to do that. And I know how to not cross the line. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'll get burnt and I'll get tripped up at some point, but so far I don't think I have. So, but I, and I think there's a public service in me going and speaking in those settings, so long as the ground rules are really clear. And I always make them clear. I was just called and I said, I will not answer solutions. How do you, how do we, how should we fix this? What policy? I don't, we will put it up on our website, but we will say we've interviewed 20 different folks from Walmart to Oceana. And here's what they say the solutions are. 
we are journalistically going to have on our page a solutions page, but we are not advocating one solution or the other. We highlight the problems in a fair way. And then we look to folks and we report on what folks say should be done to solve them. Um, and at the hearing, I would do the same thing. And, and if folks ask me specific partisan questions, I just say, look, here's what I found in my reporting. I just come back to where I'm supposed to be standing. Um, so th th that's um, exactly. where we go. And we try to treat, we try to treat all the different stakeholders the same, whether it's Oceana or Walmart. We're like, look, everything is on record. Things are in writing. We're going to publish it all. And this, in this project, we did something very unusual. We've been talking with all these stakeholders for a year now, and every interaction was on record, in writing, and we published it all in a 300 companies. Here's what we said. Here's what they said back. Sometimes angry, aggressive, threatening, but here's what they said back. Here's what we replied so that everyone, and that worked amazingly well because the industry I was going to say, the, the, that's quite effective. The, yeah. In terms of follow-up coverage, because the industry press said, okay, now we see exactly what you guys said and how you said it and the sleight of hand that you called them on when they replied and said it was this and that. no, 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 that's not what the law says. And, and now we can start at third base, not at first base when we pick up the story and run with it. And that was great for us. It is a marvel as, as it is a marvel as to how transparency works. <laughs> Ian, Ian, last question. So I, I really encourage our listeners to go to the Outlaw Ocean Project website because you guys do something unique, at least to me anyway, maybe there are others doing it. You use non-news sort of platforms and methods to get this information out there. Um, music, art, animation, mural art, stage performances, podcasts. Why, why do all that? <laughs> um, why do it? <laughs> well, so in theory, and I, I believe it, um, there, are, there's if if you look at the pie that is the planet and and the news consuming planet, when I think of it, I think of big slices of the pie that are completely not ac accessed by the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Globe and Mail or El País or Le Monde, right? Um, these are all, and they're big chunks. One of them is youth. You know, I find. My son and lots of very smart people who are taking a lot of information are not reading it in traditional news sites. Another of is non-English, right? So a story that took us four years and over a million dollars and went to see eight times. And, you know, we really shouldn't put that out there unless we have a multilingual plan, especially aimed at the countries where the, the extractive industry of journalism is pulling the resources from, right? The, the places, so we're like, we are going to pause for six months and find partners in these places and translate it and all that. Okay, so non-English and youth. Well, what we found was that um, a lot of folks on ramp in weird ways on the internet and music is this really cool method of getting folks to on-ramp into the journalism or into the videos, sort of a gateway drug, if you will, by kind of speaking to them, going at them, not through their eyes, but through their ears and their heart, you know, like, and sort of a more emotional play. It takes a big leap of faith. You recruit an artist and you say, hey, here's our journalism. We're not going to hand you our footage because that gets dodgy, dodgy. You know, you can make misery porn. And so we don't, but here's the written story. You have a month to make something that, that if it moves you, make something that speaks in your language to your audience, a component of it. We're not going to mess with your aesthetic freedom, hand it back to us. Then we're going to interview you on what you were trying to say in your own words. Like, why did you hone in on that? Why did... And then we're going to put the interview up 
And that allows us into your community and into, so that's Portugal or Argentina or Mexico or Cuba or Taiwan. And suddenly you're accessing a weird side door into demographics you're not normally accessing with the New Yorker, you know. Um, and same thing with mural art or animation or stage. It's the same basic gimmick, if you will. But so far it's worked really well. We get a lot of interesting traffic to the site from these other sites and you see how long the IP address sits and reads the piece and it's it's worth the effort. Could, could you share one of the stories that this took place with? Yeah, I mean, the China investigation um, was an example. Previously, we were doing it for all the reporting and on this one, we said, um, let's do it with this and let's target the countries where the Chinese fleet is most present and where there's a most complicated relationship. So Argentina, Peru, Ecuador, um, I think we had uh, an artist in Brazil. And so we, we said, let's go out to the muralists and musicians. Let's give them three months, present them the material, have them decide what speaks to them, figure out where they're going to, you know, what time do they need to do their art? We put in a little bit of revenue, not huge, um, to try to cover their costs. They own the end product. We learned a hard lesson about ownership and making sure the artists maintain ownership. So now the artists own their thing. We just get to use it on our site. And then they hand it back. And then we take an extra month to do the video and all that other stuff. And if you go to the website, you know, theallocean.com slash China, and you hit the art tab under index, you can see the murals in the four different places, the, the songs. And again, whether I like the music or not is completely irrelevant. You know, it's, I, in this case, I, I love them. They're gorgeous and haunting and, and kind of tap into something that feels tonally right. But even if it came in tonally wrong to my ear, it doesn't matter to that artist. That's what they wanted to say with it. And, and so we put it up on the site when we released the project and, and see how it goes. Fascinating, Ian. Thank you. This has been alarming, but uh, very informative and, and, and quite helpful for our listeners. Ian, thank you for being on The Crux. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Ian's book is The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontiers. And the website is, is for the Outlaw Ocean Project that Ian just mentioned is outlawocean.com. Listeners, thanks for being with us. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Crux. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.